edition of Turned Out a Punk. I'm your host, Damien Abraham, and once again, I am bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved in punk, but had their life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, huge guest for me personally, huge guest for punk rock in general, Chris Freeman of the legendary band Pansy Division, also of the fairly obscure Seattle band, The Attachments. But you know what? Obscurity is the bread and butter of Turn Out of Punk. So we will get into all of that in a second. But first, if you would like to get in touch with the show, you can find us over at the email address turnedoutapunkpodcast at gmail.com. There is also a Facebook page run by my brother and show producer, Tristan Abraham, and you can send him a message on either of those platforms and he will get the message to me. If you want to find me, I'm available on various forms of social media at Left for Damien, like Instagram and Twitter. There's also a Turned Out a Punk Instagram page at Turned Out a Punk. Uh, if you would like to see some of the stuff that gets posted on that Facebook page and you do not use Facebook, there is a Tumblr page. Tumblr or turnoutapunk.tumblr.com. Pretty sure that's it. If you would like to support the show, you can do so by helping to spread the word to all your good buddies and let them know that we've got a good thing going on here at this show. You can also rate this show on whatever platform you're listening to it on and, uh, you know, and spread the word that way. That helps algorithms and things like that. And I guess it, it helps spread the word to, uh, you know, to, to, to like-minded souls, like other people out there that might enjoy this uh this cool thing we have going on here. We got a pretty cool thing going on here at, over at Turned Out a Punk, right? I, I think so too. Um, anyway, so um, speaking of supporting the show, this show would not be possible without the loving support of the fine, fine folks at Vans. Vans, of course, has come aboard and uh, said that, hey, Damien, we like what you do. We want you to keep doing it, but uh, we're going to let you do it without having to spend money out of your own bucket. And what more? We're going to let you, or we're going to fly you out to House of Van shows over the course of the summer and let you interview some of your favorite artists. And I'm I'm talking about a virtual who's who. You can find all this stuff over at vans.com slash house of vans, house dash of dash vans. Um, and there's, yeah, like an amazing list of artists, like a real, like a real crazy range. I'm going to have a hard time picking who I want to do these live ones with because there is a... Uh, a plethora of interesting artists. Do you know, do you go with someone on the nose that has been on the show before? Do you go with a past guest that's been on the show, but you have an awesome time every time you get to talk to them? Or do you go with someone a little left of field, you know? And all of that's here. Anyway, these are my problems. They're not your problems. But if you are in Chicago or New York or plan on going to either of those places, Keep your ears peeled for the announcement of these RSVPs for these House of Van shows because they do fill up very quickly, and they are a very good time. Trust me on that. Speaking of very good times, today on the show, it's a good time indeed. Chris Freeman is on the show, who is someone who had a profound impact on myself, my brother, and all my friends when we were younger. We got a chance to meet them at a local radio station, and they were just super cool and continue to be super cool. And kind of, you know, as I tell them on this episode, set the gold standard for me about how a band should act to their fans. And I think there's a lot of punk bands that, that do that, you know, like it, but unfortunately there are a lot of bands that don't do that too. 
So, you know, the Panzer Division was an amazing experience in the positive column for myself when I got to meet him as a young person. And also, talk about someone that had an impact on an entire generation of punk fans. Pansy Division were that band. Now, this is an episode where we go into tons of stuff. We go into Seattle music history. We go into uh, Berkeley stuff. We go all over the place. Um, there is a point towards the end where we get into the conversation uh, where Chris asked me to name uh, some uh, gay rock bands and, and, and bands on the charts right now. I come up with two names. There are many names I left off that list. I could have come up with a lot more, and I should have come up with a lot more. Um, but, you know, he, he is trying to drive a point home. You'll get to that section. This will all make sense at that section. I think that's it for notes this week, though. Uh, this is a doozy. This is a really good one. This is the one I've wanted to talk to like this for a very long time. And this is someone, once again... I have to thank my brother and show producer, Tristan Abraham, for tracking down and getting on the show because the Tristan is doing that. Tristan is definitely doing it. Thank you, Tristan. All right. Uh, I'm not going to blather on anymore. I appreciate all of you uh, putting up with the delay this week in the show. Um, we had a celebration of life for my mom who passed away, so um, things were a little jumbled and stuff, but they're getting back to normal a little bit. So, uh, thank you everyone also for the kind words and, and love and support. Like I really, uh, really, really appreciate that. Very unexpected. Thank you for sending that. And, uh, also, um, to awkwardly shift gears, uh, the Spotify playlists, I'm going to keep making those for these episodes. So you can go there. There'll be a Chris Freeman one. It's, it's fun. It's a lot of fun to listen to this kind of music. I'm just finishing it up right now, but that'll be coming in the next few weeks. Anyway, sit back, relax, and enjoy Chris Freeman on Turned Out a Punk. Chris, thank you so much for coming on the show. Well, you're very welcome. Thank you for asking. Well, as I was just telling you off air, you've had a indelible impact on not just myself, but also my brother's life early on when we got to meet you guys. And it just kind of, I don't know, set, set a, a high bar, but it's kind of set a tone for a way bands should interact with fans that I think I try and follow to this day. Like, and so I really appreciate, you know, being kind to a bunch of, I'm sure really annoying kids back then. (laughs) (laughs) You know, uh, that's the, one of the things that I was, that I gravitated to punk for Mm -hmm. is that most of my bands, my favorite bands when I was 16, 17 and 1977, 78, started you know becoming assholes i'm sure it was the drugs too but yeah yeah you know and it just it was like a textbook i could just look at this and go this is how i never want to be if I ever get to the point where i'm lucky enough to be in 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 somebody else's eyes somebody that they look up to then i would never want to be uh interacting with somebody like that that just that's just horrible well i so assure, there, I assure so, you you didn't to us at all it was the exact opposite <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, but also, I think the, the thing is, obviously, I want to talk to you about Pansy Division. But I think the thing that I've kind of, you know, been so intrigued by recently is the attachments. And I want to find out oh, all about this God. band. But uh, I got to start that. I got to start this off the way I start them all off, which is, Chris, how'd you get into punk? Do you remember the first time you ever came across the genre? 
Yes. Um, well, I don't know the exact first time. It was more of a, like, um, a time period. It was, um, I think it was 77. Um, and I had just moved to back to Seattle. I'd moved a bunch of different times when I was a kid. So I, I went to like nine different schools. It was crazy. Mm-hmm. So I moved back to Seattle. It was the, the summer of 77. Um, and, um, I had been able to now become aware of, you know, okay, there's this record store that I can go to, um, because the town I lived in before, which actually was Aberdeen at that point. Um, so there was not much that I could get from that. You know, I couldn't even buy circus magazine, you know, they'd be (laughs) gone so quickly. So living in Seattle, I seemed to have more access to things and could read about things more. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, of course, because there was nothing else, there was no internet. There was no, there was just the radio. That was all there was and magazines to be able to get information or another picture or, or maybe on the weekends, you know, you'd see um, Don Kirstner's rock concert or, mm-hmm. you know, Midnight Special or something like that. And, you know, maybe a band you'd like would get on there. Um, but I picked up a magazine with Kiss on the cover because, you know, 1975 to 77, Kiss were everything to me. They yeah. were, you know, they took over for Alice Cooper because Alice Cooper was my favorite when I was a really young kid. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then kiss of course. So then, but you know, kiss were starting to go disco. They just did, you know, I was made for loving you and they were already showing the signs of rock star where, you know, where they've now doing the solo albums and, you know, I'm like, okay, I think this band's <laughs> shelf life is over. Um, and, but I'd pick up the magazines and I'd read about them and, uh, you know, and Paul Stanley would go, you know, like, okay, here's my top 10, records of all time, you know, Led Zeppelin, Beatles, uh, Jimi Hendrix, but he mentioned Raw Power by Iggy Pop. Oh, yeah. (laughs) And I was like, oh, I've kind of heard of Iggy Pop. And uh, so I bought Raw Power. I was like, oh, my God. (laughs) I've never heard anything like that. Um, and then they would also have articles in the same magazines like, okay, well, here's Kiss and they come from New York. So here's sort of this new crop of New York bands that you can read about, you know, oh, here's uh, Talking Heads, television, well, the Ramones, hmm, these sound very, you know, so they were basically just promoting uh, the scene around them in New York, but it was, it happened to be now it's punk. Mm-hmm. Um and so I really got introduced to that side of it first. And to me, that music was so much more fun than how my, my favorite bands had, you know, had sort of digressed. You know what I mean? They just kind of, uh, either they, they gave up on their sound or they gave up on uh, something or they went disco or something. Yeah. Uh, and it seemed like every band around that time was doing something like that, you know? We have Queen did it. Queen did it. The, even the Kinks did Superman. I want to fly like Superman. I mean, everybody was doing it. Blondie even did it. You know, it was like, oh God, must we? I, for me, disco was like the worst thing ever. And you know, it's still sort of now. It's EDM is to me is the worst thing ever. I I I would rather listen to Brain Drill on forty five. <laughs> I don't know. It's just. 
uh, <laughs> uh, it's just, it just, yeah, I can't, I can't deal with it. Um, so that's how I started to, you know, I was reading about this, this stuff in, in the magazine. So then I go to the record store and I'd ask and I'd, you know, sort of look around, poke around and find things. And, and, um, I remember for my 18th birthday, I got two yellow records, um, from my friends. They bought me Devo, Are We Not Men, mm-hmm. and B-52's first album. And it was, to me, it was like, that was, this is it. Why would anyone listen to anything else? (laughs) It's amazing how those two bands, like it comes up on this podcast time and time again, like that was the gateway, like those two bands. And it's like, they're, and it's still to this day, like those two bands getting pop success is just such an anomaly and so perfect that it happened. Yeah. 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 And the Ramones, of course, but Mm -hmm. those two records, I mean, I I, I bought, uh, my first Ramones album was Rocket to Russia because that was the first one I could find. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that for me is still my favorite uh, Ramones record. Um, But it had that fun, that spirit of Mad Magazine, like little cartoons written in the, in the, in the edges. And, um, you know, that was all sort of really stuff that I was into. And, you know, the whole, the whole paradigm that uh, Devo created of, you know, Bougie Boy and the story background. And it was just so much fun. And the B-52s were just nothing but fun. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for me, when I remember being into punk, it was like, this makes me laugh and smile and want to dance around, pogo around and get nuts. Um, and that's something that music hadn't done for me in a very long time. Um, and so it wasn't so hard to sort of leave everything else behind because they were leaving me behind as far as I was concerned, you know, mm-hmm. they, they had started to do things that, well, that's not what I'm listening to. So, all right. Like, I guess, you know, from the sounds of it very much, you were like a rock kid growing up. Had you like gone to any concerts prior to kind of this, uh, you know, punk awakening? No, I, I kind of had a rough upbringing um so and i got kicked out at 16 so so that was the summer of 77 yeah um and that kind of for me i didn't have a lot of money um but my first concert was august 12th of 1977 because my parents didn't let me go to concerts at all they they said no way um so and it was cheap trick opening for kiss wow that's an 1977. Awesome show. So, oh my God, you know, it was like, okay, let's set the bar so fucking high. Um, and then I think the next concert I went to was April of 78 and it was Mahogany Rush and Aerosmith and Aerosmith were dogged. It was so bad. And I really didn't like the draw the line album. I, I mean, I, I could even hear, it was like, this is shrill. What happened? Now, now I know it was drugs, but, yeah, yeah. Um, but I just thought this record sucks. And after rocks, which is such a great record um, to come up with that kind of, I didn't, I didn't like it. Mm-hmm. And Steven Tyler had to be brought out to the mic stand. He was all smacked out and they didn't even say one word they played. They didn't even, they were like, 
they couldn't have been more bored. So for me, I was like, okay, I will never see your fucking band again. Oh, can, I, I, can I say that? Oh, please. Yeah, no, don't worry. <laughs> oh, okay, good. Uh, I was going to say, but that's like another example, I guess, of one of these bands that was leaving you behind, you know, like yeah. you were saying. It's like, okay, if you, if you stood up there and I wasted my $8 and fucking 50 cents that I scraped together at my dishwashing job at Shakey's pizza parlor. <laughs> um, and and you, if you, if you got out there and you got so fucked up that you couldn't play to me, that was a travesty as well. That was like, Nope, I'm, I ain't buying it. I don't care. It ain't cool. If you're up there and you're all fucked up, I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. If you don't deliver, if you're so high that you can't deliver, then fuck you. So, and that's, that also was gravitating me towards punk because, you know, they were so approachable. You could go and talk to the bands in these small places. The, the problem for me was that most of the places they would play were um, over 21. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I remember sitting outside of the Astor Park in Seattle and listening to U2 when they first came to Seattle because um, I couldn't get in. I wasn't 21. Um what yeah. were what were some of the first bands that kind of came on your radar locally that were happening? Well, locally, yeah. Um, there were so many bands in Seattle uh, between 1980 and 1985. Um, it was an incredible scene, mm-hmm. and we were like certain that somebody was going to see some of the so one band or another from this town, and would. Um, you know, would then go, Oh wow. What else is up here? You know, it happened much later after, you know, Bruce Pavitt was able to kind of clean the slate. And, but basically there were bands like the heats. Uh, I saw them open for the kinks and I saw that they would play these bars and then two, um, all ages places opened up. And one of them was the Showbox downtown. And the other one was a club called Mr. Bill's after that, um, sort of claymation character from, from Saturday, Saturday Night Live. Live. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that place was Mr. Bill's. And they they had they had an all ages um, thing going. So we could kind of see some of these bands um, if they played the uh, all ages stuff. So I fucking so love that's that song. I don't like I your face. To... Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but that the oh heats. yes, that song yes. is incredible. Oh my God, I can't believe you mentioned it. I bought the 45 from them. I was so into that. Even though it said, you think you're pretty, I think you're queer. I want to see you standing here. And I kind of was like, ooh. Oh, I forgot about that part. Um, Sorry. But no, no, no. I, I I loved the band. I mean, okay. I was like, all right, well, you you know, you get a pass for that. But um, I've got their records. I listen to them frequently. They were one of the best bands in Seattle. And then there was another band sort of like, they, if they were the Beatles, there was a band called the Cowboys that were sort yeah. of like the Rolling Stones. I've got that 45 and too. That band's fucking amazing as well. They were so good. And they were doing the, you know, hey, look at Michael. He's a rude boy. So they were sort of bringing in that sort of ska element. Yeah. Um, and then, um, then I saw a show, and I think it was February of 80 or something like that. I, I don't have my... my um, concert list with me right now but oh you have a concert i'm, I'm gonna say february you? of night oh yeah it's there you can find it on my website i think I, I think i put it up um so it's um 
I kept track up until 94. And then when I started touring, I couldn't keep track anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, but, uh, it was, um, the specials opening for the police and the specials, I had never heard anything about them. I, I had no idea what to expect. Um, they came out eight people and just the two singers went on either side of the PA. They climbed to the top of the PA and were dancing on top of it. Now the show box in Seattle, it was an old dance hall and the floor was, was wood, but it had the springs underneath it. Cause it was made, meant for dancing and the pogoing started then. And it was just unbelievable. And I was 19 and I was like, this is something I've never seen or heard before. Um, so that was, you know, so there are a lot of shows that bands in Seattle, uh, or musicians in Seattle were going to, and we were all being sort of fed the same things, you know, mm-hmm. um, Iggy pop got banned from playing Seattle cause he played a show at the Hippodrome and pushed the PA off onto the, into the crowd. Um, and they said, no way. That's a, you know, it's a hazard for you get to kill somebody, you know, he kind of could get a with that. That's an insane. He could have, he could have, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, um, it was, you know, he got him banned from playing Seattle <laughs> for the longest time. Uh, I remember the pretenders did a tour with Iggy and then they couldn't play with Iggy in Seattle. And Chrissy Hine came out and she goes, your town sucks. <laughs> 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 you guys, you don't know what you're missing. You guys got Iggy Pop banned from this place. And everyone's like, yes, that totally bites. We're so sorry. <laughs> he could have killed us all. <laughs> he could have, but we didn't mean to. It was yeah, our stupid city ordinances. And oh, man, there was a lot of really bad stuff went happened in Seattle because all these bands were so good. Mondo Vita. Um, I mean, um, Red Dress. I mean, I could just go on and on and on. I've got records, like tons of records of all these bands. Um, <clears throat> when but then you... thing, things started not not working out. Mm-hmm. These places where all ages clubs, where I started to go to when I was um, 18 or so, 19, um, they all started dry up. Um, Seattle just hated at that point. It was like when Footloose, the movie came out, I'm like, that's fucking Seattle. (laughs) It's like, no, you can't do anything. If you're underage, you can't do anything. The only thing I was allowed to do pretty much was go to a midnight showing of Rocky Horror Picture Show at the Neptune Theater in the U District. That was it. They didn't want you doing anything. So it was like, okay, well, Something's got to happen. And then they put up um, a postering law. So around 85, 86, they said, we're, it's causing litter. So what we're going to do is we're going to go find the club. So if you've got a you know Central Tavern ad or something, or we're playing at this club or whatever, they're going to go to the club and find the club. Oh. So it stopped postering immediately. Yeah, because yeah, no band's um, so going gonna... to... Bands could, Oh, sorry. I was just going to say, like, yeah, the band's not going to be able to afford to pay that fine, so they'll go after the club. No, cut off the source, right? And how do you track a band anyway? They yeah. just break up, and then yeah. nobody pays. So yeah, they go after. So they went right after the clubs, shut it down. So in around '85, bands started to either break up or leave, including my band, Attachments. We broke up, um, and 
like the Heats broke up. They became a couple of other different bands along the way, the Range Hoods and Ten Bulls, and all. it was kind of weird. But um, uh, oh, one of my favorite bands, the Blackouts. Oh yeah. my God, that forty-five is amazing. In the Blackouts, <sighs> they have an EP. If you can find the four-song EP, it's called Men in Motion. It is absolute brilliance. Um, the drummer's Bill Rieflin, who now plays in King Crimson, but used to play in REM uh, and also Ministry. He, he the, the band, the Blackouts, they left, moved to Boston. And um, part of them, um, the drummer and the bass player became Ministry's backing rhythm section when they turned industrial. So it was like, you know, that's the kind of talent that was sitting in Seattle, but you just, nobody was paying attention. Mm-hmm. So with the postering law, the all ages place is closing. Now it's like, well, what are we doing here? Um, so even I left in 87, I'm like, I, I can't stick around. I tried for a little while. Um, and I was watching, you know, all the bands, everything's drying up. Um, but then Bruce and John, who I worked with both of them at Muzak, and Bruce and Bruce Pavitt and John Poneman. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there are some of these looser bands that were sort of um, becoming, forming, trying to do stuff on the fringes, like, um, um, they, and they'd have shows at these bars that weren't supposed to have shows, like Club Vogue in Seattle had uh, Soundgarden. Um, and I remember a band called H Hour with a drummer named Tad. Oh my God, H Hour <laughs> were awesome. So, what would they sound like? Um, H hour, um, it was like if in excess had, um, uh, how do I put it? It's sort of, it, it was, I have a cassette of their record, one of the re- shows. I took a, I'd take a Walkman with me and record the shows because, you know, they didn't often get vinyl or anything. So yeah. I'm trying to remember if I can explain it. It's, it's like really early in excess, but, but only as a four piece, like, like a rock trio with a singer. Oh, that's awesome. Um, but, but I remember going, they kind of remind me of in excess though, but it was really powerful. And the drummer, you know, Tad, he just had this little, he had this, um, little Ringo kit, little Ludwig <laughs> Ringo, you know, that sort of, uh, bowling ball, um, design. And he just fucking nailed it. He would just whack. Um, and it was just, it was so good. Um, and I'm like, oh man. And then Stoundgarden would come out and I go, they should get Tad to play with them. They would really be great with Tad <laughs> as their drummer. Um, but that never happened. Um, so, you know, I worked with these guys and I could, just as I was about to leave, um, leave town, they were starting sub pop and, you know, they just had the first uh, Soundgarden and Green River seven inches. Mm-hmm. So they were, you know, test pressing those and we were listening to them uh, on our breaks. And I said, well, this is really great guys, but you know, um, I've also known that most of you <laughs> won't want a gay bass player in your band. And so, you know, what are we going to do about that? Cause mm-hmm. in attachments, I didn't, you know, I agreed not to say anything. That was a conversation um, that they actually had with you. Oh yeah. Wow. Oh yeah. We, yeah, that was uh part of, there was a guy named Aaron Jacobi's who was working at A&M and um, I believe he had something to do with the Soundgarden signing. Um, and he came up to 
watch us at one point. And so then they sent a marketing company side marketing, side one marketing or something like that. And they were talking to us, grooming us, you know, okay, here's how you, you know, you're the tall, yeah, you're tall, you know, like how are you going to be in pictures? What are you going to do? All this sort of, you know, um, oh, you're, you're one of the songwriters. Yeah. I'm one of the songwriters as well. And it's really interesting because I can write the songs that I want to write and a girl's going to sing it. So I don't have to change the pronouns. Um, so, uh, but they go, oh yeah, but you're gay. So yeah, you're, yeah, we just won't interview you. Wow. You know, we just won't give you reason to have much to say. <laughs> and you're the bass player anyway. So, you know, so I'm like, oh, uh, I, you know, cause my band and they all looked at me like, what the fuck? Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, well, okay. If this is the game, we're doing it, you know, cause they all knew and, and, in fact, the guitar player is the first person I ever told that I was gay. So um, I've been playing with him before I even came out. Um, so, you know, this was like family and I'm like, well, let's one for all. Let's do it. So, um, but then it broke up by the end of the year for other reasons. And we're like, oh, shit. Well, that's the last time I'm going to ever do that. But where am I going to go to find people that are gay that play music? I just didn't know anybody. I guess before we get to you leaving, I, I kind of wanted to actually go back to when you started playing music and how how did you start sure. playing? How did you start playing music? Well, when I first saw Kiss on TV on the Midnight Special, I was like, "Oh my god!" They did everything. I mean, as I mentioned, Alice Cooper was my love before that, but Kiss took it up a different notch. You know, like it it was. It was such a spectacle and it was really dark, uh, much darker than the stupid poppy thing they went through. And then, and now, you know, they're known for, uh, they were, you know, the first few albums were dark. Um, and I loved that about them. Mm -hmm. Um, so I was instantly, you know, in 14, I was like, um, I think we've got an acoustic guitar in the closet. <laughs> So I, you know, I'm like, yeah, here it is. <laughs> so I started playing guitar thinking I'm going to be a guitar player, a rhythm guitar player. So that's kind of when that was happening. That was uh, 75. And then um, <clears throat> that was kind of what I thought I was going to be. And then when I finally moved to Seattle and um, finished high school and living, I was living on my own um, as a, I was a junior in high school when I got kicked out. So I was wow. living on my own, working at Shakey's at night, going to high school. And then I started a band um, or I started, I didn't start a band. I went to, I wanted to start a band and I didn't know how to do it. Mm -hmm. So I was looking around, you know, who's smoking pot at the, in the parking lot at school, <laughs> you know, who's listening to Led Zeppelin, who's listening to Rush, you know, okay. Who's got, you know, who's got the sticks logo on their peachy, you know, who's listening to Elvis <laughs> Costello or whatever it is. And I'm like, okay, so that's who I'm figuring out who to get to know in this, my last year of school. So, yeah. um, who can I sell some drugs to? <laughs> it was really, you know, all, all, all fronts. Um, and so then I, I met a guitar player and he said, well, I've got a band and we've got, you know, we don't need anybody in it, but you should come and listen to us play in our, you know, we'll play in our living room. So I went and listened to him play and, 
And I realized, I was realizing there's a real shortage of bass players. Mm -hmm. Like a lot of people are like, well, you've already got a guitar player. We've got a rhythm guitar player. We, you know, I'm like, well, hmm. and I didn't have a guitar to start with. I just had the funky little acoustic. Um, and so, um, I thought, oh, maybe I, I should be a bass player. Um, so I went to see this, these friends of mine and, and I'm like, oh, I know I can play bass better than that fool. <laughs> so I, so I actually said that to him. I said, I'll go get a bass. So I actually saved up, uh, and it was about like getting my tax return time. Cause I spent my first tax return money on a bass. Um, and I remember I took the two guys with me and said, let's go get me a bass. I'll show you. <laughs> <laughs> it was so cocky and ridiculous, but, uh, it worked. Somehow it worked. And, yeah. and I bought the bass and we, I joined the band and we were a band for a year and a half and it was good. And what then, was the uh, band called? Sorry. Relic. Relic. We were really uh, Pink Floyd fans, and Relics was a, one of our favorite records. So, yeah. Did you guys play out, or, or did you record or anything? We never did anything. Uh, we, I had, you know, I'd record our rehearsals. Mm -hmm. uh, I'd have to take my stereo downstairs and hook up a, you know, microphone to it, and uh, recorded our rehearsals. But, um, the. Um, they never came out very well, <laughs> so that that's all I've got of the of the record of it because we never did much. No, yeah. we didn't have any money, and we never were old enough to play the clubs. And you know, how do you get your first show? We didn't even know. I mean, it was like we could barely walk in the door of the club and go, "What's what's this about?" You know? Yeah. Um, and I I look at people on the stage, and you know, when I start going to the show box later after that band broke up, I was like, you're my age and you're <laughs> up here. I, I got, I've got to do this. I've got to be up here. So, um, so I, you know, would start to network and that was, that would get me going, but well, where'd you kind of go but from yeah, relics? Was, I'm sorry. Where'd you kind of go from relics then? What was the next step for you then? So from relic, um, well, the problem with relic was, um, I had been dating the, niece of the drummer and whoa how was I the came drummer one night and she, the drummer well we were 19 and the and yeah so yeah exactly um there was a a, a large span between his sister oh, okay and okay yeah, okay that was yeah. like just like a super yeah there was drummer. a large span yeah okay yeah and like there's and like me and my one of my sisters i'm 11 years different okay, so yeah, yeah there's yeah. so we knew yeah so um so I was dating her and then I actually found her with somebody else at one point. I'm like, um, that's not going to work anymore. So then I kind of felt like I had to move away. <clears throat> and I was also really questioning really seriously. Like I can't hide this anymore. I don't have to hide it cause I'm not in school anymore. Um, I need to figure out if this is, if being gay, if this is true, mm -hmm. is this, you know, is this what I'm supposed to be or, or is this, you know, so that led me to sort of moving away from everybody, finding a place by myself, starting over, um, not having a band, not really having a friend base, you know, and just like, okay, I've got to, I'm going to find a new way here. And, um, so I met a guitar player and started playing with him. And then, then I had the experience with a man and I was like, oh, okay, yeah, I'm gay. <laughs> 
that's okay. Well, at least I know now. And I am out of the closet. <laughs> <laughs> so it was like instantaneous. I'm like, all right, this is it. I'm, I'm, I've had the experience that told me what I needed to know. And, and, um, that's it. Told and, as many people as I could. And so at, at this point, like, as you're saying, like, was the, were the people around you accepting at least like, you know, especially compared to your tor- horrible experience with the record label later on? Well, no, some people really could not get behind it. Um, uh, and so I wanted to make sure I could, you know, all right, let's separate the wheat from the chaff, you know, whatever mm-hmm. it's going to be. I, I, I want to get this over with it. Cause I don't want to, if you're not going to be my friend because of this, then it, it there's nothing I'm going to be able to do to change that. Mm-hmm. So, um, cause I'm not going to pretend. So, uh, it was, I lost quite a few friends. Yeah. And as I say, I ended up just moving away and pretty much starting over. Before you before you move away, just uh, as I say, I'm, I, I do love these attachment records, and I've I've always kind of been fascinated <laughs> by this band. Well, because like you know, I knew I when as soon as I found out that you were in it, I was like, oh wow, it's like this whole other world. Because you guys, it's not just like you were in like some band that you know put in a demo and that was it. Like you guys have like a substantial discography. <laughs> yeah, kind of. Yeah, and it's all self released, right? Yes. Um, there was a song on a Christmas record for the Children's Orthopedic Hospital. I think that song is still for sale. You can still buy that volume one of that record. So um, that's the only one that was not self released. So the EP was self released. Mm-hmm. I financed the seven inch single we did in between the that and the full length, and then we did one last single, and then the Christmas song, and then we broke up. And, and you're also on that so, crazy tape comp, Local Heroes and New yeah. Faces. <clears throat> yeah, KYYX, yes. That's an amazing snapshot of what was going on. It was incredible. Yeah. It's a, I don't have this tape, but like some of the bands on this, it's it's amazing. Like the Allies, you know, um, yeah. like Stripes. They like, were huge. Yeah, they, they, yes. they, they, that record never even, that was supposed to, there was supposed to be a reissue of that thing a couple of years ago that I don't think ever came out. Yeah, I don't think so. Um, there was, there's been people that have been trying to kind of resuscitate that time period, but I think Seattle nostalgia is kind of over. Mm-hmm. So um, I think that you know only the the people like me that are you know I'm going to digitize this and post it and. <laughs> well, there's uh, people like I'll me that are very I, grateful for you doing that. <laughs> well, and here's the other thing. I mean. It, the this the full length album you if you, I don't know if you have a copy of it or I can get you one if you don't oh I'd love I a have co- a copy I, I only have the first EP. I have all the vi- I have the vinyl EP oh you have the EP yeah just the EP the very first okay one. I'll get you the I'll get you the full length we'll we'll, we'll trade digits later Absolutely. I'll send you the LP so the LP that we made because we were you know we did the EP at Hart Studio with Hart's producer at the time and um. So he really took us under his wing and the seven inch we made after that was, um, our sort of our master's degree in pop from (laughs) working with this guy from heart, you know, it's incredible. Um, but we realized we could not afford to keep working with him, um, and put out what we wanted to put out. Mm -hmm. So, um, we started casting around, we found this new studio, um, and uh, 
so we went and talked to the um, the engineer, and he said, "Yeah, you should listen to this record here. I, I, I'm just mi- finishing up the mixes for it, and that's this would be my first my first uh, album here at the Steve Lawson Studios." And we were like, "Okay, put it on." It was, so it was the first metal church album. Oh, fucking! <laughs> you know, right? <laughs> so we're hearing, you know. Blah, blah. That first fucking metal church song coming out of the speakers. I'm like, yes, and yes, <laughs> we're doing it in this studio, and you are the guy. So, oh, that's um, awesome. So here, and the guy who did it was Terry Date, who later on became, you know, a huge record producer for metal. He did Limp Biscuit, and he did Rob Zombie, and he's done a bunch of stuff. So, you know, I'm. I worked with some crazy people in the past. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, it's, <laughs> it's like, oh, they found their way to success. Well, you know, like you're talking about that scene that you kind of, you know, obviously you left for a, a lot of different reasons, but that scene is like eventually the, the people that come out of that, yourself included, and all the bands that come out of that scene and, and musicians that wind up in different places. It's like for for a town that was kind of off the beaten track, it's amazing how much of a cultural impact it would go on to have. Yeah. Well, the thing was, it was very supportive. Mm. Everybody would go see everybody else's bands Mm -hmm. because it was like, if you got a gig, man, I got to get a gig, you know? So (laughs) I'm going to be at your gig so I can figure out how you got that gig. Um, So, but, but not only that, but, you know, everybody would drink together. Everybody would be, you know, some, eventually we'd all be at the same rehearsal studios. Um, and anybody that was like trying to do something interesting, everybody was into it. So, um, and we were all kind of steeped in the same sort of stuff. I mean, it was, it's amazing. I'd talk to people and they go, I was at that cheap trick kiss show, man. That was awesome. You know, like all, we had all these shows in common throughout the years. Like, oh yeah, we've all been at these same shows. We were all steeped in the same stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so it it is kind of interesting how all these you know bands uh, like Mud Honey, of course, they were one of my favorites. Mm-hmm. Green River was one of the best bands in Seattle. It was too bad they broke up, but what oh about, my god! What about Soldier and like some of those bands? Did they like would they have played with the Attachments or would would you have gone? To no, them? that was punk. So Attachments was we were pop. So yeah. we played with the Allies. We played with uh, Stripes. Um, who funny enough, they, the bass player was Steve Fawson from heart. Yeah. Um, um, we played with Dan Reed network. They came up and played, we, uh, we played with them at the hall of fame. Um, so that was the kind of band we would play with, mm-hmm. um, uh, visible targets, uh, Mondo Vida. Um, there were a bunch of bands that, um, and then we had the same manager. We actually, uh, Mondo Vida and um, this other band. Um, so we ended up having the same manager. So we get on, you know, shows together and stuff. We ended up playing Bumber Shoot up there. It was a big deal. Yeah. So yeah, it was it was it was a good band. It was it was interesting. Um. So when, I don't know where it would have gone though. Yeah, I know it's interesting. Like to think of like all these bands in, in different cities, how it might have been different, right? Because it. Like you said, like you're kind of just waiting for someone to kind of notice you there as opposed to right. like New York or Los Angeles where there's kind of a music industry that's actively trying to find bands. Right. 
when when yeah. you did eventually just move, uh, you did you take time off from music for a few years, right? No, I, 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 well, I, I later I did. Okay. Um, you know, for me, everything was closed down in Seattle. I mean, it was kind of, you know, that term 86 in a restaurant when they <laughs> say, oh yeah, there's no more of that dish, you know, yeah. it's 86. In 1986 was the year Seattle shut down. There was nothing left. Hmm. So the whole thing that happened with sub pop happened on a clean slate. There was nothing left left of seattle everybody had moved away or broke up or were doing completely other things um so that's why i was like okay i'm i'm my band had broken up i was woodshedding with some other folks but i thought we got to get out of here there's nothing here mm. um so i left at the uh close to the end of 87 and i remember green river came down and played the chameleon and in uh, San Francisco um, on their way down to open for guns and roses <laughs> doing a, a, doing a, a, a showcase with guns and roses. That was crazy. Um, and so I moved to San Francisco with part of attachments. This one of the singers and the keyboard player. So we were trying to get a drummer. We were trying to get a guitar player. Um, we ran into, producers that would help us out we tried certain other things and finally it just it just imploded it was like we can't do this anymore mm-hmm. um and so i started playing um i was really looking for anything i could get and it was really desperate for me because i was like who would take a gay bass player you know who that's part of the deal i gotta first impress them with being a bass player and then i gotta you know go, well, hopefully I'm good enough that you, you know, are willing to accept the fact that I'm gay, you know, cause that's going to be something that I, I can't hide it, but I won't, you know, I'm not going to make a deal out of it or whatever it was going to be. So I ended up playing with this band called the model citizens with a Z at the end. And it was, um, David Caffinetti, the keyboard player from spinal tap. <laughs> and it, it was like this really horrible. And, oh, and the, uh, a guitar player who had played with the nuns for a while. Oh, that's um, fucking awesome. And it was pretty incredible, like pedigree, but the music just sucked. It was so bad. What was the vibe? It was, it was so bad. It was like, it was like really bad journey with a little bit of sisters of mercy kind of thrown <laughs> in. Um, but it was so dumb. The lyrics were so dumb. And eventually I was like, this is so cool, but it's so not cool. I've got to yeah. get out of here. Um, so, <laughs> so that's when I said, all right, well, I'm about to turn 30. Um, there's, that's kind of the, the death knell for anybody. If you haven't been signed by the time you're 30, forget it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and I knew that it also takes a good two to three years for a band to get up and running. Mm-hmm. So, um, uh, I thought, well, all right, I might as well give it up. I might as well go something else. So I, I worked, I started working as a video editor. So, <laughs> and I was working sort of playing with bands just for fun. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and then I thought, oh, I, I could work with some other bands, like being a producer and stuff. So um, I started working with this band called Blue Period, who <clears throat> later broke up, but the singer became a um, an amazing entrepreneur. And he actually created this whole thing with mashups uh, called Booty. So he's got clubs all over the world now. He's incredible. Wow. Um yeah, so so you know that was fun, um, you know, and I would just play around, but I was not serious. I'm like, okay, I got a I got a video career now. This is, mm. this is fine. I can just play music for fun, and 
play around town and, you know, not be serious about it. And that's when I've read the ad for Pansy Division. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this will be just for fun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, fun can last a few years or, <laughs> or quite a few years. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I guess like, yeah. were you kind of like, were you kind of like involved in any scene at that point? Or are you just kind of like going to the odd show here and there? Or was there like much of a music scene happening at the time? Well, in San Francisco, there was, everything was happening. Yeah. Um, one of the first shows I went to was Red Cross at the I-Beam 1987, October of 87. And it was just, it was unbelievable. Uh, then I saw the Butthole Surfers there and I saw um, the Buzzcocks. Um, and then right down the street was a club called Nightbreak, and I would see Faith No More, I would see um, Primus, mm. uh, Psycho 24-7 Spies. Um, you know, there's just, it was, everything was happening in San Francisco. So it was everything that I wanted. Yeah. And um, I didn't have a car, because Seattle, I didn't need a car. There was a good bus system there. So San Francisco had a bus system. I mean, originally I was going to move to LA, but I didn't want to have to buy a car and get, you know, deal with it. And I'm so not butch. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, I mean, I didn't learn to drive until I was 24. I still don't know. So believe me, you're, you're preaching. There to the you go. See? One. Yeah. I would definitely move to a city with the BART over a freeway system any day. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and it was more, it was like seven miles by seven miles. It just seemed less intimidating yeah. and more manageable. And plus, look at all the music that was going on here. It was incredible. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah, I was really, I was, I was jazzed to be there. Um, and then, you know, when it was so interesting to me, though, the thing that one of our first shows with Pansy Division in a club was at Chameleon, where I'd seen Green River play. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I, I didn't know what to expect and who was on the bill. And then I walked in and here was this, this, the, the gal who would be, bringing me videos she was a bike messenger and i was like lynn and she goes yeah oh you're from wells fargo and i'm like yeah what, what's going on she goes well are you playing and i'm like yeah oh oh are you in tribe eight yeah and you're in pansy division oh my god <laughs> I mean, that was like, okay, how did these two sort of mushrooms grow at the same time? It was like this, you know, it wasn't like one started another. They both, they were, Tribate was going at the same time. It yeah. was pretty incredible. Yeah. No, so, the, what yeah. an amazing band that band is too, Tribate. Yes. Oh my God, they're, they were so incredible live. So were you aware of Pansy Division before you saw the ad at all or no? No, not at all, because he he hadn't really done anything. Um, he played a, a private sort of um, gay club called Pop Popstitute. Okay, um, and um, so he'd done that, but it was just him playing along to track recorded tracks. Okay, um, and then we sort of did the same thing, but took out the bass and we played our first shows to tracks. <laughs> And quickly realized, oh, that was, that's not going to work. We're not going to do that anymore. We need a drummer. Come on, let's do, let's get a drummer. Um, so, but no, I didn't know anything. Uh -uh. 
Where did you go? So when you guys first started playing together, what were the shows you guys were playing with? So obviously Tribe 8, but where was it? There was a, like an immediately kind of a following or was that something that was built over time? It was, um, it was built over time, but I think word got around real fast that you should come see these bands with lesbians and with, and with gay guys. And we had dancers up on the stage and we were, you know, it was a big production. Yeah. We played at the I beam later and, um, you know, we had up to eight different dancers on stage with us at a time, all spraying silly string everywhere and just going crazy. (laughs) Um, and so it became a big spectacle. Um, so it was, um, that became sort of like, Oh, you guys can, let's get you guys at the DNA lounge. Let's, you know, it's, so the places kept getting bigger and bigger and more prestigious. And, um, but, uh, yeah, it sort of built up over time. It was not instant, but the word did get around real fast that there's this sort of queer scene happening and it, and that's, it's something to be paid attention to. Mm-hmm. There were all sorts of really great bands, Malibu Barbie, um, hyperdrive kittens. There were a lot of good bands. Yeah. And like, yeah, I was going to say like there a lot of those bands, not, not a lot, but I, some of those bands you mentioned, I've, I've never heard of like, was there like an unrecorded kind of scene too, that was also happening in addition to like, you know, yeah, it was the same thing. You know, I bring, I bring something to record them, you know, so I could have a, just like, so I could listen to them. Yeah. Um, but you know, b- bands would put seven inches out, um, or they would get together with somebody, uh, another band put out, you know, co co CD or, or not CD, but back then it was all vinyls, but yeah. Um, yeah, comp, you know, you get, you get the one side, we'll get the other, um, the split. Uh, or four bands doing a four song EP. So there was, there was a lot of that too. Um, or there was this place called commotion, which was a, um, an attempt to be very um, uh, social, socialist. Mm-hmm. And so they all bought in on a building and they turned it into some living spaces, some performance space, some recording space. And they ended up bringing bands in and Pansy Division played there many times. And they would record the shows and then um, they would have you come in and record. You could record your albums there. So we did uh, Deflowered and most of Pile Up there. And uh, it was cheap. And, you know, they would go, and we'll put, we're putting out a comp every year, or, or actually it became more than that, um, and you'll get a song on it. So it was great. Uh, there was a lot of networking going on, which reminded me of Seattle. It was a lot of cooperation and a lot of mutual support. Is that that comp fear of a pop, of pop music that you guys were on with like We're on that it? one. That is not that is not one of the ones. Uh look up Commotion K O M O T I O N. Okay. Uh San Francisco and you'll start to see sort of the, that stuff will pop up. They had zines and stuff and um it was a um a lot of different stuff. Art performance. Oh, awesome. No, I've never yeah, heard of that place. Cool. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, ha- it was cool. How long did that run for? Was it just a few years kind of? It, it was a, it was many years actually. Um, but things change, you know, as people Mm -hmm. fall out or whatever. And Mm -hmm. so I, we didn't keep track of it. Um, and virtually we start at that point, we were out of town seven months a year. So, um, you know, we weren't even around. So we'd come back and be like, Oh, that place closed months ago. Like what? (laughs) (laughs) I guess we have been gone a while on tour. Uh, yeah. 
How did the relationship with Lookout Records come about? Well, we wanted to put out vinyl because that's that's what, what you we do. did. You yeah. know, all, all of our friends were doing it. We wanted the same thing, but yeah. we, you know, we were we put out cassettes um, first. Um, and then, um, we said, well, we're doing pretty well with cassettes. I think we sold a couple hundred cassettes just through the basic channels and at shows and stuff. So different light bookstore. And so we were able to like, say, look, you know, we've got sales. We, we could sell 250, you know, seven inches really easily. So, um, Jello would come and see our shows. Um, and then once we started putting our toe into the East Bay scene, um, playing the warehouses over there, um, uh, Larry had seen us mm -hmm. and he was like, yeah, okay. Um, um, and we thought, well, look out, you're cute. That's really cute. <laughs> they weren't anything at that point. You yeah. know what I mean? They yeah. weren't. They they had just put out Kerplunk, which was the second Green Day record, and we got copies of that. And we we're like, "Fuck, this band's fucking great, man! Watch out!" Mm -hmm. um, and so, um, Jello said, "Yeah, well, I'll, you know, I'm going to put out your seven inch, and we'll do it." And then he said, "Oh, fuck, I can't do it. I don't have the money right now." And we're like, "Okay." And Larry said, "Well, I'll do it." And we're like, "Okay." That was pretty much it. <laughs> <laughs> and you still wound up doing it, something really. with Jello like, in the end too, right? So you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It worked out both worked ways. Out, both ways, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it was so painless too. It was like running into Jesse in the street and like, "Hey, we go, yeah, no, no, I'm, I'm, a, I'm over here with the uh, Dead Kennedys now, or with a, uh, <clears throat> with um, Jello Biafra." And, over at uh, Alternative Tentacles is what I meant to say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, and I was like, "What? You left Lookout?" And he's like, "Oh, fuck them." And I'm like, "Yeah, that's what we said too." <laughs> so, okay, and you, oh yeah, well, Jello's. Are you guys doing anything? Yeah, we're recording a record. Oh well, I'll tell Jello. Okay, next week. Okay, we're on we're on Alternative <laughs> Tentacles now. It was like, oh, that was about as easy as it could be. It yeah. was really the least painful of anything. <laughs> um. Um, yeah, that couldn't have been more easy. Well, yeah, like I was going to get back to it because, you know, you signed a Lookout event or you do the record with Lookout, but then then things change for that label, I imagine, very quickly. Yeah. Um, was yeah. I mean, you know, the, the thing that made it so famous was Green Day and the yeah. thing that tanked it was Green Day. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it was unfortunate they couldn't, you know, turn it over, but – you know, Larry, that wasn't what Larry wanted. That mm -hmm. wasn't what he got into the business for. And that wasn't what he expected. He wanted to provide a, a you know, a, a, a leg up um, for music that he thought was worthwhile. Um, and, you know, we all knew when we heard Kerplunk, we were like, well, dude, this band is going to break, yeah. you know? Um, and that was what happened. Um, but now you've gone from selling 50,000 of that's your top selling record. Now you're selling, Oh my God, you know, now they're on, they're selling 14 million on their next record. And guess what happened to their back catalog? Now they've got to become a fulfillment, you know, mm -hmm. it's, it's insane. So they've got, you know, now you've got to have warehouses and you've got to have production lines and all the things that they didn't want to have. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Larry finally just said, I'm, I, you know what, this is no fun anymore <clears throat> and I'm going to move on. Um, 
so he sold it to the the other people and they just did not know what they were doing so and they certainly didn't like what pansy division was doing at the time so it became a mutual well kiss my ass then you know yeah <laughs> it's unfortunate You're not paying too. royalties you threw away you <laughs> they threw away our merchandise i mean they really? threw away tons of our stuff yeah yeah told us after the fact and so pissed yeah I, I said so so you you know you you could have called us and said we're about to do this well it would have meant you had to pay, pay you know your the the um wholesale price and i'm like you were throwing them away <laughs> exactly you know what that reminds me of it reminds me of working at mcdonald's hey you've got 10 burgers here at the end of the night they're gonna go th in the trash can i just take one no you'll have to pay employee price <laughs> that's what it was like yeah I I said you're you're no different than McDonald's. It's, it's so I was very angry at them. Well, it's funny how like you know, and I'm sure you, no one who starts a label is like I want to one day become the bane of all my band's existence. But it's amazing how many labels wind up doing that. Right. Well, you know, and it, it, to be fair, it wasn't exactly that because he sold it to people who he thought would treat it with the same care and love that he put into it. And it's never going to be that way. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I do not fault Larry at all. He, he did exactly what he set out to do. Um, and you know, the, the, the prize is you were right, Larry, your mm -hmm. taste won, mm -hmm. you know, um, you were absolutely correct about the talent that was there. And that I think was the most important thing for him. Well, yeah, um, you, you go back to that catalog, you look at like from you guys to like neurosis to like, yeah, even like, like, well, obviously Green Day, but Operation Ivy, Crim Shrine, like, it's just like such yes. a, a, a breadth of unbelievable bands. Yeah. That don't sound Unreal. the same. No, I was very happy about that. Yeah. yeah. And uh, it was later that they started to, to, to do more bands that sounded the same. Mm hmm you know, and they were like, oh, don't you want to use Master Genie to produce your record? We're like, <laughs> and sound just like that other record and yeah. that other record number, you know, no, no, we're not going to do that. <laughs> um, <laughs> so there was, there was some politics involved later on that, yeah, made it stinky. Yeah. Well, I Larry guess always said, do what you think, do what you think, follow your gut, follow, you know, follow your instincts. But do a dance song. <laughs> He's like, make a dance, do a dance song. Um, well, I guess you start chasing the success, right? Like you have to uh, if, when you run a label. I guess you expand and then you're like, okay, how do I keep this going? Well, in his mind, he just wanted, he was hoping, you know, you never think that the band that you've championed is going to sell 14 million records mm -hmm. in, within a year. That's just not on your radar when you're thinking about the success of a band. Yeah. You know, if that band could get to the point where they sold a hundred thousand records on an indie, <laughs> you know, that's great. Um, but um, that was, like I say, that was never the goal for him. So he had originally thought, well, that's great. Green Day are going to do well, not 14 million. Well, but they're going to do, you know what I mean? Like, the, so, Oh, good. I can use some of this money to, to reseed, you know, mm -hmm. to go and, and get, get bands into the studio and do what they want to do and, and create something fun and interesting. And, but that's not what happened, you know, within months, it was an avalanche. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I guess like the, yeah. 
the ideal success you want is that Operation Ivy energy record where it consistently sells yes. for years. Um, but yes, correct. A, a moderate amount that you can kind of handle with. Yeah, your, exactly. Your smaller shop. Um, when that yeah. success happened, what was it like to be like it, a, around that kind of like environment where like other labels, like major labels kind of coming towards you guys now, like looking at Lookout, like trying to get the next Green Day or were you guys kind of like, you know, insulated from that a little bit in your own scene? <laughs> Well, you know, everybody realized the potential now. Yeah. And so did the labels. They were like, oh, they came sniffing around for everybody. Yeah. But, you know, they what they found was a lot of the same. Well, they've already got a lot of the same. They want something, you know, that maybe better than or something that's got, you know, let's 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 dig around here. So, you know, bands like Mr. T Experience, you know, they could have been up there. They could have been a contender. Um, <laughs> you know, there were a lot of bands right then that thought, well, we're the next ones. Um, you know, Squirt Gun, um, Water Dog. I mean, there's just ton, there were a ton of bands sort of circling that we thought, well, it's going to be the next one. The difference for Pansy Division was we'd already been on that tour and saw the rocket ride that, that just happened to them. And, you know, I had some serious talks with Har uh, Howie Klein. He would come out to the shows and, you know, and he'd go, yeah, I'm gay. I, I think you guys are great. You know, this is just what just what was needed. And I'm so glad that Green Day decided to, to do this. You know, it's really ballsy. And I was like, well, so what do you think of a, the chances of a gay band on, on Reprise or on Warner Brothers? And he was like, no, don't. Don't do it. He said, first of all, we can't sell you in all the main main chains without putting a big warning sticker. You know, you've got a naked person on the front cover of your debut record. <laughs> you've got two, you know, sub teenagers in, in bed with each other on the second album cover. Um, do you think you're going to get away with that? No, you are far more potent right where you're at. Mm -hmm. And we were like, you're absolutely right. Yep. Okay. So we'll just keep doing our thing. You guys were for like an entire generation, myself included, like uh, a breakthrough from like a heteronormative kind of worldview that you're, you're presented to so many times in, in this society, you know, and then here's Pansy Division just sh shattering that and, and offering this yeah. like whole other like no this 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 whole other world and 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 so unapologetic and it was just like you know it was just something that you know like yeah like on a major label what would they have done to prevent that power from coming through right they wouldn't have been able to do it it was just not you know ellen hadn't happened yet you yeah. know what i mean like yeah. the 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 main cultural shift hadn't come through um so the um you know, it's, oh, I lost it. There was a thought there and I forgot what it well, was. I, I, I want like, to, oh, I should touch on that. No, well, I, I, I kind of want to, and you know, if your thought comes back, please interrupt me. But I was going to say like, do you guys ever think that you were part of that cultural shift for certainly well, the music world? Well, we, we did, um, later mm -hmm. while it was happening. No. Yeah. No. I mean, we were touring, we were, you know, we were trying to make ends meet, so we didn't, that wasn't the thing, but now when we, you know, a few years later around, you know, the end of 
maybe around 99, 2000, we were starting to slow down a little bit and we were like, whoa, look what just happened. What did we, what? Yeah. Okay. We, but mostly also in contrast, because we thought that maybe what we would be doing is opening the door and then all these bands would come, you know, tramping, trampling over us, trying to get out the door, you know, Mm -hmm. and they didn't happen. Mm -hmm. We were shocked. There's still no it, name one gay rock band that's still around. We're still we're still around. Yeah, <laughs> but are there any others? No. Well, like on a mainstream. Did, what? Yeah, like it's Frank Ocean, and and that's like the, been the mainstream right. success story that keeps um, and Limperist, I guess too. But they're not a major yeah. rock band. <laughs> yeah, to a certain extent. But but we thought, okay, all the good musicians are going to just come clamoring out. We we will have broken out down the yeah. doors, and all these bands are going to come after us. And that just never happened. So we, that's kind of what was shocking to us. It's like, well, are we still last man standing here? <laughs> <laughs> Where did the rest of you go? Yeah. <laughs> or, or did we really lock out in finding the four of us together? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because that's all you have. Um, I don't know. Um, but I still find that kind of interesting. There's still no gay metal band yet. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, you know, what, where, where did that go? Mm-hmm. We don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, same thing sort of, you know, there's not a lot of female rock bands like there were in the nineties too. There was everywhere you looked, there were females in music. And, uh, that's, to me, that was loved it but you know i wanted more of that but then it just quickly turned into nope no they're gone well the boys club always finds a way of winning out you know like right the the old boys network is is a strong network to try and break and yeah it's true well even my i have a tribute band called gay cdc awesome and my yeah and we played last night that's why my voice is a little hoarse um so I'm the singer in that band. I do the 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 Bon Scott, Brian Johnson stuff, and so we played uh, this uh, ultimate jam night at the Whiskey, and um, you know it's all these rock stars from massive bands like Sweet and Quiet Riot, and you know all these people, you know, <laughs> like up there doing Gay CDC, um, and it, you know, it's. It, there is a separation, you know, there's just a little bit of like, yeah, I love you guys. You're so funny. And I'm not gay for sure. I'm not gay. I just want you to know, <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So it's interesting. But it's, it, and it's, and it's, and it's sad that like, you know, there's still like, well, not sad, but I, you know, and I don't mean to be like overly simplifying it by saying this, but like, there's a long way to go. Like there's just so much yeah. further that these people have to be taken. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yep. I, Chris, I've talked to you for well over an hour at this point and I could talk to you yeah. for well over an hour more. Will you come back at some point <laughs> for a part two? Absolutely. Yes. Let's this plan is, it. Yep. And, and honestly, as I said, off air at the very beginning and, and kind of a little bit on the air at the beginning of our conversation, uh, thank you for like, you know, all you did for, you know, not just myself, but specifically myself by being so awesome, you know, and, and as a band being so awesome and like, there's a generation of kids in Toronto that I know that, you know, all from you guys being cool, kind of were inspired to pursue this and and do stuff in this world. So thank you. 
Thank you. That means a lot to me. Thank you. That, you know, that is something that we never thought was going to happen. It was just going to be for fun. It was just for our friends and act up around San Francisco. (laughs) We had no idea that it would just turn into this at all. We, it wasn't even, even close to being on our radar. So for us to, to keep getting this feedback, like what you just said, it's a constant um, gratitude. Very grateful to have been a part of it. So thank you too. Thank you, Chris, for coming on the show. And as you heard it right there, Chris will be back for a part two at some point in the future. And a part three and a part four, of course, as, as these things tend to go, hopefully. You know, I'm going to get to more of those this year as well, because there have not been as many part twos as there should be. But that's just because I have a lot of fun with the part ones, you know, and, and I'm, there's a lot more people I want to get the part ones done with. Ugh. There's so many turn it punks to do and so few weeks to do them in, but I will continue to work away on it. Speaking of part twos, though, next week on the show, I do have a part two. Kinda. And, and, and kind of like two part twos. Because uh, next week on the show, Brian Walsby and Buzz from the Melvins sit down on the show. Brian Walsby, of course, if you have not listened to the Brian Walsby episode... I implore you to do so because he has had one of the most interesting careers in all of punk music. Not just punk music. I want to say all of music. Like, he has had uh, so many... Uh, well, rock music. Let's put rock music because I'm sure there's someone who would be like, well, there's this other artist that did this and that. But rock music, I'm safe in saying that because here's a guy who has played in the pre-Super Chunk band, the pre-Ryan Adams band, the pre-10-foot pole and pulley band... Uh, turned down Nirvana. Anyway, listen to that first episode with him. And of course, you know, what needs to be said about King Buzzo that uh, doesn't precede him already. A legend in music, uh, one of the most incredibly fascinating people I know. Next week, I sit down with both of them and get a chance to kind of uh, conversate about a lot of different subjects and about a lot of interesting things. We talk about music, we talk about art, we talk about. Being optimistic and how you should be and why uh, it's important to remain and, you know, optimistic. It's a fascinating conversation. I'm, I'm telling you, that is next week on the show. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Thank you, everyone who supports this show, you know, tells your friends, rates this thing, does all that stuff. It really means a lot to me. Uh, once again, I cannot thank you enough for all the love and support in the last few weeks, months. Uh you know, and yeah, thank you. Uh, also, uh, I've got an uncle right now who is waiting an organ transplant. And, you know, I was recently talking to some family and, you know, I, I got to start saying this, you know, sign your organ donor card. Cause by the time people are requesting your organs, you're not going to need them. So why not just sign that card and, you know, give the gift of life to someone. And that's not in a, you know, because that's that's true. It could really mean the gift of life to someone. So, uh, not just selfishly for my family, because believe me, where people are listening to this, it's not going to not necessarily go to my family if you sign those organ donor cards, but it will go to someone who needs it. So please sign your organ donor certificate, and uh, yeah, and I will see you next week. Uh, go out there and make your own culture. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Bye. <laughs>